You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Romans chapter 8, and as you're turning, I want to express uh, gratitude for the opportunity to be here this morning and uh, to say thank you on, uh, well, to greet you also in the name of our president at uh, your seminary in Louisville, Dr. Moeller, and I know he would want me to thank you for your church's gifts to the cooperative program. And uh, you are uh, legendary in your support of the cooperative program, but I just wanted to personally acknowledge that and uh, all that means to us and to uh, use it as an opportunity to say thank you for paying my salary. (laughs) In Romans chapter 8, we have a, a wonderful promise there. We're in uh, verse 31, which if I can get my fingers to turn the page. Yeah, one of those cases where two pages stick together and my fingers can't get it apart. There we go. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, how do you know if God is for you or not? That's a very important question when you consider the alternative, that God is against you. So how do you know whether God supports you or whether he does not? For example, if uh, you want to get married but nothing ever works out, does that mean God is against you? And what if you get the spouse you dreamed of? Does that mean God is for you? But then what if that marriage breaks apart? Does that mean God is against you? What if you're unable to have children? Does that mean God is against you? And what if you have many wonderful children? Does that mean God is for you? What if you can't get a job or you lose your job? Does that mean God is against you? What if you have unprecedented job success? Does that mean God is for you? What if you're always having money trouble? Does that mean God is against you? What if you win the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes? Does that mean God is for you? If someone you love very dearly dies, though you prayed for them to live, does that mean God is against you? And what if God spares that life? Does that mean God is for you? Ultimately, how do you know? Because all the good things that I've just mentioned here have happened to those God is dead set against. And all the bad things I've just mentioned here have happened to those God is clearly for. So, in the end, how do you know whether God is for you or whether he is not? None of these things that I've just mentioned are any indication one way or the other. So how do you know? Well, the main way we know, and this is my first point if you're taking notes, we know as believers in Christ that God is for us because of what the Bible says he's done for us. 
We know as believers in Christ that God is for us because of what the Bible says God has done for us, not because of changing circumstances. It's because of the unchanging Word of God. The Bible is a record of what God has done for us, and let's look at this verse again, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? And you can sort of see the Apostle Paul pause and stroke his beard here as he's thinking about this. What do we say to these things? And then after thinking about it, he concludes the next sentence. If God is for us, who can be against us? So you notice two verses, uh, two sentences in this short verse. What then shall we say to these things? And Paul thinks about it for a while. And then he begins the next sentence with if. Now, in the Greek language, you know that the New Testament was first written in. Uh, Sometimes that really makes a big difference. And here's one of those cases. That little word translated in English as if, well, when they wrote this, that they had several words in Greek all translated in English as if, as the word if. And it's sort of like uh, people who live up around the Arctic Circle, I'm, I'm told, have about 16 totally different words for the word snow. Translated in English as snow down here, we don't need that many words, but they have fine distinctions between types of snow up there. They have one word for fine powdery snow, they have another word for heavy wet snow, 16 different words. If you translate them in English, it just means snow. Well, in Greek, they had several different words translated in English as if. And one of them would mean, well, if, and, and we'll see, depending on the circumstances. And here's what that looks like in English. A man might say, I'm going fishing tomorrow if it doesn't rain. And we understand, well, he might, he might not. We'll see, based on the circumstances. But the same man might say, I'm going fishing tomorrow if the sun comes up. He's going fishing tomorrow regardless of the circumstances. That's the kind of if Paul uses here in verse 31. We could almost translate it as since. God is for us. Who can be against us? But he makes that decision, since God is for us, based upon that previous sentence there. What shall we say to these things? And he thinks for a while about these things. And as he thinks about these things, these things convince Paul and ought to convince believers here this morning, God is for us. Well, then the question is, what are these things that convince Paul and ought to convince us God is for us. Well, that takes us up to the previous paragraph. These things are the things he's just written about in the previous paragraph, starting in verse 26. So, for example, we know God is for us because the Holy Spirit he gives to us when we come to Christ helps us to pray, especially when we don't know what to pray. Or we can't pray. Let's Read what he says about that in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, 
but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he, that's God the Father, who searches the hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit dwelling in the believer, he knows what the mind of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us is, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints, for us, according to the will of God. In other words, we don't always know what to pray for. We're not omniscient, and we don't know the future, and we know we want to pray. We, we can't not pray. Something is coming, and it's very important, but we don't know, should I pray this or should I pray that? We don't know what to pray. We don't know what the future holds. In our limited knowledge, this could be the best thing to pray for. This could be the way to pray for it. We don't know. And then there are times you desperately need to pray and you can't pray. You ever been there? Your heart is like lead in your chest. And all you can do is sort of cast yourself across the bed and just cry out, Oh God, you are in such pain, physically perhaps, you are so overwhelmed with the circumstances, with the grief. Maybe you're, you're in such pain, you're, you're taking medication and you can't put one thought together with another. You, you can't pray. You want to pray. You desperately need prayer more than you can ever remember. But you can't. What do you do? Well, here Paul says what God does for us. God gives us the Holy Spirit to those who come to Christ in faith. And the Spirit of God, says here, helps us to pray. In fact, it says the Spirit himself, it emphasizes, helps us to pray. We don't know to pray or can't pray. When we're in one of those situations, we desperately need to pray, but we don't know what to pray or we can't pray, God is not in heaven wringing his hands saying, well, bless his heart. Bless her heart. If she could just, come on, give me something to work with, would you? If you just utter something that I can take and, and work with and maybe help you out. No, no. God is so great and God is so good that when you can't pray, but you desperately need to pray, he prays for you. When you want to pray, but you don't know the future, he does, and he prays for you, which is why it says he intercedes according to the will of God. And Paul says, you know what? If God will do that, God is for me. If he will pray for me when I can't pray, if he prays for me when I don't know what to pray, the Spirit himself not just some angel. The Spirit himself prays for us. He intercedes for us, and he intercedes according to the will of God, as if he could pray any other way. And Paul says, if, if in the worst times in my life, when I most need prayer, and I don't know what to pray or I can't pray, if he prays for me and prays the very will of God, which is always answered, God is for me. But that's not all. There's another one of these things that convinced Paul and ought to convince believers this morning, God is for me, and it's in the very famous next verse, Romans 8, 28. And we know, and I just stop right there. You 
generally, if you know your Bible, you know where we're going here in Romans 8, 28. But have you ever noticed that part of it? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. We'll come to that in just a moment. But we know this. How do we know this? Well, have you ever connected this famous verse with these two previous verses? How do we know that this promise in Romans 8, 28 is true? Because of what we just saw. We know that in the worst times in our lives, that's when we cling to Romans 8, 28, right? That in those times when we most desperately need prayer, the Spirit of God is praying for us. And what is he praying? He's praying the very will of God for us, which is always answered. That's why we can know that Romans 8, 28 is true. And we know that for those who love God, not everybody, but for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not for everybody, but for those who are called according to His purpose. We know this when we don't see it. We know this when we don't feel it. Because the Spirit Himself is praying for us in those situations. And again, when do we cling to Romans 8, 28? In the worst times in our lives, right? When it doesn't appear there's anything good in this. When we're overwhelmed, when we're confused, when it's disastrous. If you believe the Word of God, you cling to this promise. The only way you can, by faith, because there doesn't appear to be anything. And notice it says all things in the life of a Christian. That everything, that means even things that are evil. Things that are pure evil. You call them evil, God calls them evil. There's nothing good in them whatsoever. So this verse isn't calling us to put on rose-colored glasses and call something that's really evil to call it good. This verse isn't telling us to, well, look for the silver lining in the cloud. Some clouds don't have silver linings, do they? This isn't calling us to, to call something what it's not. You say, this is pure evil, and God says, amen, you're right. But what this Bible, uh, what Bible verse is saying is we have a God so great and so good, He can take things that are pure evil and cause them to work together with other things in his almighty hands. That a divine alchemy happens in his hands. And it turn, comes out as gold. Good. For our eternal good and for his glory. Something we may not see in this world, but once again, this is what it means to live by faith and walk by faith, to cling to something as true when you can't see it. That makes no sense to the worldling. That makes no sense to those in spiritual darkness. That makes no sense to those who are spiritually blind and spiritually dead. It's calling you to believe in something you cannot see and probably will not see in this world. Like. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, though you have not seen him, you love him. You ever thought about it in the sense of the greatest love of your life is someone you've never even seen before? The one a true Christian would be willing to die for, you've never even seen before. You know what? The world says that's stupid. 
That's stupid. Why would you love more than anybody else someone you've never even seen? That makes no sense. Yep, that's what faith is. And only someone changed by the Spirit of God believes that and almost laughs at you're right. I love Jesus more than I love anybody on this earth. I've never even seen Jesus before. Yep, that makes no sense. If that makes no sense to you, we hope someday by God's mercy it does. But for the believer, we say, that's right. I've never seen Jesus, but I would die for Jesus. That's what living by faith is. And that's what faith and the promises of God right here are. And this is, you know, one of these verses we cling to at the, at the most difficult times in our lives. And by the way, I've noticed in recent years, Christians seem to be a little hesitant from clinging to and, and sharing Romans 8, 28 with other people. And I understand that. Because many of us have seen people just sort of flippantly throw out Romans 8, 28 to people on the raw edge of pain. You don't throw out Romans 8, 28 flippantly to someone as mentioned in eastern Kentucky who's just, you know, when their house is full of water. You don't, well, Romans 8, 28, you know, that's not the time for that. 22 years ago on this day, right about now, this morning, you, you didn't throw that out to people watching towers fall down. People on the raw edge of pain are not ready for Romans 8, 28. People, people are crying out in anger to God, shaking their fists, God, why did you let this happen? That's not the time we give Romans 8, 28 to people. When the death has just happened, and it makes no sense. No, Romans 8, 28 is when people have settled down a bit, and they're not just reacting in the immediacy of the situation, but they're reacting with real questions. God, I, why did you let this happen? This makes no sense. This is evil. This is pure evil. And you're really searching, and your faith is tottering, perhaps. That is when Romans 8, 28, that's the time for Romans 8, 28. That this is the Word of God, and it is true. And it is a foundation when everything in our world is shaking. We can't see any good in this. And we can't see how there could ever be any good in this. But we have a God so good and so great. He is greater than all circumstances and over all evil. And he is able to take anything and work them together, it says, with other things in his almighty hand. So that the day will come in eternity, we will look back and say, praise God, he let that happen. Had I been given the opportunity, I would have not allowed that into my life. But God did. And now I praise him for that. All things, even the worst things that have ever happened to you. What's the worst thing that's ever happened to you? If we had the time and the transparency this morning to hear from everyone, I'm sure we would hear stories of things that somebody probably should be in prison for. Or maybe worse. And I've lived long enough to experience a lot of pain and evil and death, cancer and stroke and you, you name it. And you live long enough 
and all of you who have approximately the same amount or color of hair as I do uh, can affirm that. The ones you love the most will die. You live long enough, they'll all die. And you'll be the last one. You live long enough, that body you're in wears down, things, bad things happen, painful, horrible things happen to it. And maybe someone does something to you, or maybe it's circumstantial. But those in Christ will be able to say, perhaps not until eternity, we will look back and say, I would never have chosen to allow that to happen in my life. But now as I see what God has done with it, I will praise him forever that this happened. You say, Don, I can't do that. You know, only a Christian can. And only a Christian can do that by faith. And often by faith with clenched teeth and tears in your eyes. But you say, by faith, I do that. And you say, that's impossible. Let me remind you who wrote this verse. The man who wrote this verse could say, I've suffered way more than you. Don't give me your argument about how much you suffered. You can read part of it over in 2 Corinthians 12. This is the man who said he had been beaten 100, 195 times. He felt the, the whip of the Jews across his back for the sake of the gospel. 195 lashes. He said, I have been beaten so many times, I, I can't, times without number. I don't even remember how many times. How many times have you been beaten for the sake of the gospel? How many whip lashes have come across your back? He said, I was stoned and left for dead. How many times has that happened to you? Shipwrecked three times, a night and a day in the deep, in danger from my countrymen, in danger from Gentiles. And, you know, he goes on and on and on in this litany of suffering for the sake of the gospel. Paul could literally say, I have suffered more than you. But this is also the man who writes in 2 Corinthians 12 about a privilege he had we haven't had. Paul could say, I've been to heaven. He wasn't able to say much about it but he had the ultimate human privilege. And unfortunately, I mean, he would write, you know, well, unfortunately, as in your day, I didn't get a book or movie deal out of it like people in your day who have been to heaven do. But I actually did go. And I had the, the unspeakable human privilege. Nothing in the world can compare with that. So he could say, I have suffered way more than you. But I want to tell you something. I have seen what you have not seen, and you have to take by faith. And I want to tell you, he says, right here in Romans chapter 8, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed to us. He says, I want to tell you, you do not have the capacity to imagine the glory you're going to experience and the happiness you will have for all eternity. If I were to try to explain it to you, it would be like explaining algebra to an ant. You ever wonder why there's less in the Bible about heaven than about hell? In part, it's because we have no capacity to understand it. You could take an ant and you can put the, the best PowerPoints in the world up there, make it as clear as possible. The ant can't get it. 
The ant does not have the capacity to understand algebra. Brothers and sisters, you and I do not have the capacity. If heaven were explained and revealed to us, we, it would be unimaginable. We have no ability to conceive how glorious it is, nor how happy we will be. And I wish I had time to, to talk about that. So Paul is saying all things, even evil things, the worst things that ever happened to you, work together in God's hands so that ultimately we will say, I never would have allowed that if I had the choice on earth. But I want to tell you, now that it's happened, I look back, I say, praise God for everything, the worst things that have happened to me, because God is able to take that and bless me through that in ways I cannot imagine. You know, it's just the opposite for unbelievers. All things work together for bad, for unbelievers. Even the best things that have ever happened to them, they will wish for all eternity they had never experienced the worst, the best things that ever happened. Because the Bible says they will be held accountable for everything and even the best things that ever happened to them, they didn't thank God for. They didn't use them for God's glory. And they will be held accountable and judged for their sins of not being thankful for the best things they ever had. Not using them for God's glory. So for all eternity, they will hate and suffer for the best things that ever happened to them. But it's just the opposite for us. For those in Christ, we will praise God forever and ever for the worst things that happened to us. And Paul says, you know what? If God will do that, God is for me. If God will take everything that ever happens to me, even the worst things that ever happened to me, and not just neutralize them so in heaven the memory is forgotten, the pain doesn't hurt me anymore. No, it's infinitely better than that. He blesses us forever for the worst things that ever happened. Paul says, if God will do that, God is for me. But that's not all. In the next verses, what's sometimes called Paul's golden chain he gives other reasons. He gives us other things. Remember these things that cause us to believe God is for us. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this verse says, if you are in Christ, God foreknew you. And that means more than he just knew about you in advance. He knew choices you would make in advance. He knew things about you in advance. It's a more intimate word than that. It means that we could almost translate it as he foreloved you. He knew everything about you, every sin you would ever commit. Every sin you didn't commit, but would have if given the opportunity. Would have if you'd had as much pressure or temptation as other people. He knew every sin you would ever commit and ever might have committed and loved you anyway. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. All those in Christ have been predestined to become like Jesus Christ. Not like him in his divinity. We're not going to be little gods, as the Mormons believe. 
Rather, we're going to be, we have been predestined to become like him in his sinless, perfect humanity. Reflecting the glory of God from every cell and pore of our bodies. Predestined to that. Now, if this had said, we are predestined to become like angels, oh, we would have rejoiced forever to be creatures that glorious, right? And be careful not to be misled by popular culture. I mean, if, if when some person, famous person dies, sometimes you'll see a political cartoon in the, in the paper or in some other place that shows that person coming into the pearly gates, right? And, or if it shows someone eternity, they have angels' wings, all right? I, I remember when the famous entertainer Frank Sinatra died. It showed him swaggering through the pearly gates, his coat slung over his shoulder, and he's singing, I did it my way. But we had this idea that somehow when humans go to heaven, they're translated into angels somehow. I mean, even in, uh, you know, the, the famous movie, It's a Wonderful Life. You know, Clarence is an angel second class, and he's put in charge of Jimmy Stewart, you know, and, and if he does it, then he'll get his angel's wings. Somehow we have this picture, we get to heaven, you know, we turn into angels. We have been predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, not angels. But if that were the case, oh, how we would say to be a being like that. I mean, twice in the book of Revelation, the apostle John Worships, falls down to worship the angel revealing these things to him. Now, by the time this was written, this old apostle probably had a pretty good theology, don't you think? He knew theologically you do not worship angels. You don't do that. But when he saw one, just in sort of a 15-watt bulb version of his glory, he couldn't help it. He fell on his face and, and to worship the angel. The angel both times said, don't do that. Worship God. And I'm sure as the old man got up, he said, I, I, I know, I know. I, I just couldn't help it. You were too glorious. If we were going to be like that, be creatures that glorious, <clears throat> we would rejoice forever. But folks, it's better than that. We have been predestined to become according to the likeness of his son. It has not yet appeared what we shall be, John says. In 1 John 1, but we know, or 3, when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. But he goes on, it's better than that. Those whom he predestined, these he also called. Called through the gospel with a call that awakens the dead. A call like he gave to Lazarus when he stood at the tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. If he hadn't said Lazarus, they all would have come forth. But he called Lazarus with a call, a specific call that awakened him from the dead. Now, there's is what theologians call the general call that goes out as it is this morning to all hearing it. All are sincerely called to repent and come to Christ, and he will receive you. But we also speak of this special call or a specific call, like the one I received that night in Osceola, Arkansas, when I was nine years old, I had heard the gospel all my life, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, since nine months before I was born. But that Thursday night during a series of meetings this month, 59 years ago, I heard him calling me 
as never before. I heard him calling me in a way that he didn't call the boys to my right and the boys to the left that night. I heard him calling me. And that's what is referred to here, that he had no obligation to call you. He didn't need you. You didn't add anything to the team out of his grace and mercy. When you weren't looking for it, like Saul of Tarsus, in grace, he called you on your Damascus road. But that's not all. Those whom he called, it says, these he also justified. Those whom he called, these he also justified. Now, justified means more than just the forgiveness of your every sin, as if we can speak of it in such a, a way. Because do you realize that if you had never sinned, it, it, not only all your sins forgiven, if you had never sinned in your life, because sometimes people say, well, justified means just as if I had never sinned. If you had never sinned in your life, you couldn't go to heaven. That's not enough. You've got to have more to go to heaven than no sin. We have, and we have infinite sin. Jonathan Edwards, sometimes considered by Encyclopedia Britannica the greatest mind America ever produced, preached the most famous sermon in American history. He famously said, my sins are infinite upon infinite and multiplied by infinite. How can that be? Well, I want you to imagine this microphone here being the center point in a line that extends infinitely in this direction, minus one, minus two, minus three, to infinity. And on this side, it's plus one, plus two, plus three, to infinity. Well, we'd never sinned. That would be zero. But as Edwards put it, my sins are infinite upon infinite, multiplied by infinite. How, how can that be? Because we never do anything that's not affected by sin in some way. Every word, every deed, every thought, every motive, we never do anything perfectly, purely. It's all affected by sin to some degree, whether we are aware of it or not. Someone said it's like this, if sin were blue, every sin would be some shade of blue, some dark shade of blue like this, some light shade of blue like this, but every word, every deed, every thought, every motive would be some degree affected by sin. Therefore, Everything we ever do only increases our sin and guilt before God. Even the best things we ever do. When we stop and help someone on the side of the road, when we get up in the middle of the night for a sick child, the most selfless acts we ever do, to some degree, there's some sin embedded in that. It may be a little more than, well, I hope someone sees me do this. Or I hope my wife appreciates this, my spouse appreciates this, or I... Well, I, I just couldn't live with myself if I didn't do it. So even our best deeds. What does the Bible say? The Bible says even our righteousnesses. It's a plural term. Our individual acts of righteousness. In those moments when you have a choice, this is righteousness, this is unrighteousness, I, I, I choose righteousness. Good. It's what you ought to do. In some sense, God is pleased with that. But the Bible says even our righteousnesses are as what? Filthy rags. We know our sins are filthy rags in the sight of God, but the Bible says even our righteousnesses are filthy rags compared to a holy God. 
Even the best things we ever do are affected by sin and in some sense only increase our guilt before God. So one man put it, even our tears need to be washed. Even our repentance needs to be repented of. We never do anything that doesn't in some sense increase our guilt. And how is it that it's infinite upon infinite? Well, what is the, the greatest commandment? It's to love God, right, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, your neighbors, yourself. And whenever we sin, and when is that? Every moment. We're also breaking the greatest of all commandments. Because whenever we sin, and that's every moment, at that moment we're not loving God with all our heart and all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. So everything we ever do, every moment we exist, we're only increasing our guilt before God. But if you had never sinned in your life, that brings you back to zero. You can't go to heaven at zero. We must also have positive righteousness. It's one thing not to break the law of God. It's something else to keep the law of God. We must also, to go to heaven, have perfect righteousness. And who has done that? Well, there was a man. A man who came from heaven. A man who lived 33 years of perfect righteousness who never once broke the law of God, who every moment kept the law of God. Every moment of his life, he loved God with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, all his strength, his neighbor as himself. And Jesus earned heaven. So salvation by good works? Oh, you bet it is, but not yours. Someone had to work for your salvation, and Jesus worked 33 years, day and night, without one failure, even for a moment, even though in those moments when he's been up all night, perhaps, and the pressure of the false accusations of the Pharisees relentlessly upon him, and all the satanic attacks, and never once did he just lose it for a moment and get it under control again. No, not once, not a moment did he ever break the law of God, and that qualified him to be a substitute for lawbreakers like us. And he willingly submitted to be a substitute for us on the cross. So that as 2 Corinthians 5, 21 puts it, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we, the infinite sinners, might become zero, Neutral? Know that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. When we believe into Christ, and that's what belief means. The, the word means faith. We faith into Christ. We don't just believe that there is a Jesus. We believe into Jesus, the Bible says. You've heard of being in Christ by faith. Once we are in Christ, God sees us in Him, and His righteousness becomes ours. God looks upon us and sees us through the righteousness of Jesus. And that, even that is not all. For those whom He justified, these He also glorified, Paul says here. Already in the mind of God, made like Christ forever and ever, it, it, in, in the mind of God, it's It's done. It's done in God's mind. And Paul says, you know what? If God will do that, God is for me. So in other words, Paul says, what, what do we say to these things? What things, Paul? 
Well, he gives me the Holy Spirit who prays for me when I don't know what to pray. When I can't pray, he prays for me and he prays God's will, which is always answered. And because of that, he takes everything that ever happens to me, even the worst things that have ever happened to me or will ever happen to me and doesn't just neutralize them. So in heaven, the memory is gone. It doesn't hurt anymore. He actually turns them into gold. So I will praise God forever and ever at the unbelievable blessings he gives me through those. And it goes on even better. He says, and he foreknew me before I was ever born. He knew everything I would ever do, every sin I would ever commit. And he loved me anyway and predestined me, me to become not like an angel, but like Jesus himself. And when I was his enemy and dead in trespasses and sins, he ran after me and called me, a call that awakens the dead, and then gave me, me, the righteousness of Jesus. He looks upon me as though I healed all those people, as though I spoke all those words. He gave me credit for that and then has already determined to glorify me forever and ever. What shall we say to these things? Well, we could say a lot, but at the very least we can say this, God is for us. That's point one. I've got three points. <laughs> I'm three minutes over time already. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. I pray now that you would take these words and edify your people. And exalt Christ in such a way that those outside of Christ would want to run to Christ in their hearts. And to ask for your mercy. Not because they deserve it. We don't. But Jesus does. And we ask for it in his name. And for your glory. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.